It is The Brink coming to you today for a podcast. Yes, and it's 2024, which means 20 years on air. (laughs) Yay! Sort of, in some capacity. That's right. Back in 2004, we very first appeared on the airwaves. Back then, it was EC schoolies and then it developed, but... I'm sure throughout the year we will be doing many things to celebrate the fact that this is our 20, well, technically our 21st year on air if you want to do the math, but 20 years since we started on air. And we thought we'd come to you for the first episode, a week after we brought you our best of episode, just as a brief little hello, welcome to 2024. It's not going to be a very good episode if I'm being completely honest. It's just me. There's no special guests. It's a bit of a flashback episode and a few things looking forward to the year, but we thought let's get let's get started. Let's get the year off with a bang by bringing you a quick taste, a quick teaser, some memories, and then we'll have some more exciting stuff coming throughout the year. We're on that trajectory to try and bring you an episode at least once a month, and we successfully did that in 2023. We had a fantastic best of episode last week to go through all the memories of not only this show but all of our other sister shows, which of course you can tune in to on all the platforms that you hear my voice. But thought let's bring it, let's bring it. Let's bring it on, bring it on, 20 years on air, and I'm very, very excited to be able to do that. We're going to have a very special bit in just a moment. We used to have a section on this show called Flashback where we'd bring you a flashback, funnily enough. We don't really do it anymore, but we're going to do one today because we've got a special clip for you that is a 10-year anniversary clip that I will play for you in just a moment. We're going to tease ahead to some exciting things coming this year on the Brink Unleashed front which I know you're going to be very excited about, and bring you a classic interview that relates to something happening a little bit later this year in some capacity. So what a way to get the breaking year started with this episode. So sit back, relax, and get excited, people. Get excited. I'm getting excited because right away we're into it. Now, I just mentioned that we've got a 10-year anniversary clip to bring you. On this very day, 10 years ago, the day that we're releasing, this is the 7th of January, back in 2014, we were on air, our five-day-a-week breakfast show, of course, on Edge Radio in Hobart. It was a Tuesday morning, apparently a rainy day. I listened to the show, and apparently it was a bit of a rainy day. But it was a special occasion because that episode on the 7th of January, 2014, 10 years ago, marked the very first in-studio appearance of Mr. Dakota Leary. Now, he, of course, went on to be our intern and then a co-host and joined us on other some other shows such as The Qualifying Lap and everything across the years. Quite a bit of a staple part of the Brink landscape, Dakota. Actually went on to host 88 episodes of the show. So that ranks him fourth overall in terms of most episodes ever hosted. And this was actually his very first in-studio appearance. He had appeared via a pre-recorded segment and he had done some kind of background work for Edge Radio at the time. But this is when he very first made his live in-studio appearance on not only Edge Radio, but the Brink that formed a bit of a special relationship moving forward. So let's hear the opening moments of Dakota Leary's radio career on the brink. Welcome to the studio, I should say, for the first ever time in studio. He's been on this program before, but not uh, live in person. Uh, it is Mr. Dakota Leary. Dakota, uh, welcome to welcome back to the Brink and Edge Radio. Hello, thanks for having me. You've, you've been in... Well, you've been on our show before. You've been in the studio before. But did you actually get to talk when you were on in studio? No. 
So you weren't allowed to talk. No, I wasn't allowed to talk. They bring you in studio, they tease you with microphones in front of you, and they say, sit in the corner and watch. I just sat there on my phone, just like, <laughs> this, this, is, this is bull. This now, now, I don't want you to, to, to shame the other show on air. I <laughs> know, that was a good show. It but it, good I was going to say, it must have been a good show if you're sitting on, the, on your phone the whole time. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> it's... Uh, it was it was a good show. I was just on my phone. You were just phone on your phone. More interesting than the show. Yeah, <laughs> you'll say that. I'll say that. Just just go along with that. We haven't been on your phone yet in here, haven't I? Well, I mean, you're on it now that I say that. Yes. But I mean that you're not so bored that you already got your phone out and going. Oh, Ben, shut up! I'm checking the Facebook. When I'm talking. You are. But I'm going to check my Facebook now. So you're going to check. You can check. Shut have up. you have you tagged on Facebook where you are? Have you told your friends to listen? I did yesterday. You did yesterday? I did, but... I didn't show up. No. So so you're saying that it's my fault. Um, yeah, no. I'll say that. I, well, I, you're on Twitter as well. I've I tagged you on Twitter. I, Let's, I just want to actually embarrass you here on um, radio. Let's go to your Twitter Great. page. Oh. 68 followers. That's not too bad. Shivers. You're doing well. Um, I, I do have a, quite a few followers. Almost <laughs> No, I won't say that. I'm just actually seeing what you have. Can I, can I read out what you tweet, or is that really embarrassing? Oh, it depends on what you read out. Well, is what are there you going to read out? Anything inappropriate? Well, you actually followed by Julia Gillard. Have you actually noticed that? You is know it, how at the top it says followed by? Is it, it verified? Is it, it actually it, it, verified? It is, but it if, is the verified. Wow. But she, she does yeah. follow like pretty much all of Hobart. No, it's just because <laughs> I'm like... I'm her go-to guy when she comes to Hobart. Yes, yes. Yeah. She just gives you a call. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what are you saying here? You're talking about, well, your Formula One. We can talk about this later. You love your Formula One. Oh, I love it. Uh, can't wait to see what this year's F1 cars look like. Yes. Now, apparently you're obsessed with Jennifer Lawrence, I too. I am amazingly obsessed with Jennifer Lawrence. She's I, awesome. I noticed this on Facebook. I want to talk <laughs> to you about that. Um, and you're also, you've been posting a lot on Facebook about your um, F1 2013, I'm guessing. 2013, yes. You've been racing a little I've bit been, on there? I've been kind of going back to F1 2010, F1 2012, doing it all. You just you just been doing season just by season. I'm a bit bored. At oh, home. just because you're a bit bored at home. Yeah. Who do you who do you race? Do you like do you create a driver with your own name, or do you make a name up, or do you just not race as a driver and race as real drivers? I use my own name. Yeah. So you so you're Dakota Leary. I'm Dakota Leary, and yep. I drive for McLaren. Oh right. At the moment is that, is that your team of choice or that is my team of oh well. My team of choice would be Mercedes, but, but you, the current you, team of choice is McLaren. Mercedes haven't hired you yet. No. Actually, you, your background on Twitter is Marussia. Oh, that, that was done ages <laughs> ago when I was like 10. Um, <laughs> they haven't like, been around for that long. Hang I'm on like, a minute. They're quite a good team. They're not actually. So. You obviously were a very smart Formula One fan for I a was, while. I though. was great. Smart. You were very great. I went for HRT at one stage. Well, you seemed to work your way up. Because from... I... Used to be obsessed with V8 supercars, mm-hmm. and then the HRT Hold V8 racing supercars, team. And it's like, oh, that's the same name. They must be good. <laughs> but then this was in 2010, so yes. I didn't know what I was doing. Yes, this is when I really started. Did you it. initially think that they were actually Holden? <laughs> no, uh, did you, you, you did. There's a part of you that you just don't want to admit look, that you thought, "Hey, Holden's in Formula One, everybody." I was 12 years old. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was just, yeah. Well, who does know what they're doing at that age? I still don't know what I'm doing at 26. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So, so I can trust me. There's hope for everybody out there that you won't know what you're doing when you're old, <laughs> um, because 
I think I feel old right now. Uh, we're talking to Dakota Leary about everything. Oh four two seven double three four double three six. You can message in. I want you to put that on your Facebook because I want you to get see yes. if your friends are actually up at this time of morning. I mean, what do you do in school holidays? This is the thing. I remember school holidays in January. I'll be asleep right well, now. Yeah. What are you doing at seven forty eight in the morning here? I, I sleep, but. <laughs> The trouble with me is I like getting up early and I can't, I can't sleep when it's dark. Why do and you so, like getting up early? Well, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, and I, um, I can't sleep when it's dark. And so. You can't sleep when it's dark. It's light. And I'm like, oh, fuck. So you, you can't sleep when it's dark? I mean, no. Like, you mean when no. it's light? I was about to say, so are you just like, light, are yeah. you a, a nocturnal person and you just go to sleep? <laughs> Shouldn't you be asleep right now then? No. <laughs> You're, daytime, com- you you're confusing yourself. You're confusing <laughs> oh, no, yourself. Just... Update your Facebook status, I'm boy. Come on, get on there. Um, I, I'm going to do a segment today, which we usually do on a Monday, which I'll, I'll do at some point for you, your benefit. Uh, we'll do fail or no fail because um, it's a fun segment and uh, we like to laugh at new stories that happen around the world that um, are silly and are usually true. Um, like King Tutankhamun's erection that, that we're going to be reading about. That sounds sexy. Yeah, well, it's, it's a true story, apparently. Um, who, what? Like, historian person opens his remains and is like, yeah, he's got an erection. <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't know. I, right. I, I really... Send him to Yorkshire. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't actually notice whether or not it was that way, because uh, I'm like, guessing he's mummified, so everything would be hard. I know you call it a boner and all, but I don't <laughs> think it's an actual bone that you can... T- Again, it's all, everything's hard. It's mummified. It's it's not like they can tell what's up and down. He's and... got a bone, right? Yep, <laughs> uh, yep. Uh, this this show's already going south. Just go to the music. Yes, uh, wide ranging conversation, of course, and we love to hear it. And just brings back those memories of just, I guess, the fluidity. I want to say of Dakota, and just uh, you never really knew what you were going to get with him. So I appreciated that there was also there. From the very beginning of Dakota back in the day. So there you go. Welcome to 2024 with a 10-year trip down memory lane. Plenty of those to come throughout the year. Now, of course, if you're a long-term listener and a long-term follower of us here on The Brink, you'd be very much aware of a little film series we do on this show called The Brink Unleashed. Now, this first started back in 2007 when my then co-host and I, Anthony, decided to do a little trip down the east coast of Australia. And we thought, well, let's film it. Let's have some fun. Let's do a bit of a travel blog or a vlog, of course, as you may want to call it. Now, this was very pre-early social media days. This was a, I think YouTube was about a year old at that point. So this wasn't done for YouTube. This wasn't done for influencers. Facebook was barely a thing. MySpace was all the rage back then. We were still on live journal. There was very little incentive for us to do this from a social media perspective, more of just a little bit of fun. And from there, it kind of expanded. Basically, every time that I would go on a pretty significant trip, I would film it and I'd put it under the Brink Unleashed moniker. Now, some of this was just more of a personal thing, but a lot of this did involve people involved in the show, such as Sam. Sam went on a couple of trips with me along the way. Some of our spin-off shows, such as Survivor Oz, were involved in some big events overseas, so we managed to turn that into a bit of a franchise. Now, over the years, there has been a total of 11 of these films, 12 of these films, actually. Let me correct myself, Ben. I know how many films there have been over the years. And we actually haven't done a Brink Unleashed, can you believe it or not, in nearly six years, just over five years. The last time we did one of these was 2018 
when we did the Brink Unleashed 11 Aotearoa, when a bit of a journey went from the north to the south of New Zealand. And since then, there has not been a single Brink Unleashed film. Until now. Because I'm happy to report that in 2024, not only will there be a Brink Unleashed film, there will be three Brink Unleashed films. At least that is the initial plan this year. A bit of travelling, a bit of journeying going on across the year. So why not document them? So I'm going to tease you a little bit about what these will be. Brink Unleashed 12 will be called Brink Unleashed NYC, which if you put that together, you might understand where that's going to be. It's going to be a little short one, but this will be happening actually quite soon, in only a couple of weeks' time. And that also will lead me to say that our next Brink episode will feature a lot of New York heavy content. So stay tuned for that one with some familiar faces returning to the show. Our next Brink Unleashed adventure will be a bit of a middle ground one. We're going to have Brink Unleashed 12.5, similar to what we did back with 6.5. It's going to be called BU in the NT. And if you don't get that reference, it'll be in the Northern Territory. Now, this will be a very short one, similar to what we did with Brink Unleashed 6.5, when it was only a pretty limited one with Samuel and myself and that was a Melbourne-Sydney one. This will be purely Brink and myself in the Northern Territory, Uluru to be specific, and just a pretty short one. But we thought we'd just kind of middle ground that, bring, bring that up to uh, 6.5 standards and make it 12.5. Funnily enough, it seems to be every six or so, so that kind of works out with the math. And then the big one, the one that was always planned, a massive, massive one happening in the middle of the year, Brink Unleashed 13 Euro Trip. Now, this one... It's going to be big because it's going to be the first time that Brink will ever go to Europe. And a large portion of this will be Olympics related. Because if you don't listen to Off the Podium, you would not be aware that uh, myself will be heading to the Olympics in Paris this year. So uh, it'll be a bit around that. It's going to be a very, very exciting time. So three of those coming out this year after not having any for nearly six years. Can you believe it or not? And I guess we did a few in a row, sort of in that 2017-2018 period. So there was a quite a few Brink Unleashed films that came out in quick succession in that period. So we're making up for lost ground. And it'll be 17 years this year since we started the Brink Unleashed franchise. So pretty big deal with that. But to celebrate that occasion, something that we've sort of been planning a long time on this show but never have gotten around it, to celebrate the occasion this year of the Brink Unleashed returning, we are planning on doing commentaries of all of the previous 11 Brink Unleashed films, 12 Unleashed films, Ben. I, I, I've really got to work out my maths here because I think I'm just sort of going a little bit skew if around how things work out. Um, I, I really apparently can't count. There have been 12 in total because we did 6.5. When you do a lot of movies, you, when you're a movie star like me, clearly you just forget about it. Uh, the point that I'm trying to make is we'll have commentaries on each of the previous 12 Brink Unleashed films. I'm going to sit down and just talk all over them and we'll release them on this channel so that if you are fans of the films, they're all up on YouTube, of course, that you can uh, tune along and watch them with me and uh, I'll give you some insights into them, which will be a bit of fun. And we'll release those sort of sporadically throughout the year to coincide with a lot of the releases of the other films and then obviously we'll eventually do the commentaries for the new ones that come out this year. So if you're a fan of the franchise, you're going to have a big year. Three Brink Unleashed Fields coming your way in 2024. Get excited. Time to go back into the vault for a classic interview. And as you heard me just talk about a little bit in that segment before, it is an Olympic year this year, which of course means it's also a Paralympic year. And the very first Paralympian we ever had on this show, way back in the day, Michael Milton. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Michael Milton, Michael Milton 
is Australia's greatest ever winter para Olympian. This is a man who won a total of 11 medals at the Winter Paralympics in the sport of alpine skiing. He won a fantastic amount, including six gold, three silver, two bronze. Switched his hand to cycling, to which he gave that a crack at the Beijing Olympics, a year after being diagnosed with cancer, if you don't mind. So uh, an absolute legend who was able to just uh, go through a lot of adversity. And outside of his athletics career, he set the world record for running a marathon with crutches, did it in five hours, 23 minutes and 30 seconds, if you don't mind. And he's also done the Kokoda Trail twice and scaled Mount Kilimanjaro. This is a man who has been inducted into the Sports Hall of Fame. You're gonna, I mean, all this is about, literally about him, we do an introduction, but a lot of this, of course, has uh, happened post our interview. We did the interview back in 2010. So uh, post this interview, Sports Australia Hall of Fame inductee, ACT Sports Hall of Fame inductee, and a Paralympics Australia Hall of Fame inductee in 2022. Man, he's an absolute legend. And we had him back on the show in 2010. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our chat with the great Michael Milton from 2010. Michael Milton first strapped a pair of skis to his legs when he was only three years old before bone cancer caused him to lose a leg when he was nine. Despite the personal setback, Michael went on to become one of Australia's most successful Paralympic athletes, making his debut at just 14 at the 1988 Winter Paralympics and going on to win 11 Paralympic medals in total. Michael has also tried his hand at speed skiing and is currently the world's fastest disabled skier. Recently, Michael has been involved in motivational speaking as well as swapping the Winter Paralympics for the summer, competing in the 2008 Paralympics in cycling in Beijing. During the week, I spoke to Michael about his career and what he can expect for the future. Michael, thank you very much for your time here on The Brink this morning. Good morning. So I started skiing at the age of three. Now, how does a three-year-old Canberra boy get involved in skiing? I guess my parents had a real passion for the sport. They actually had their honeymoon skiing. So uh, they started a ski shop the year I was born. And it was pretty natural for both my sister and I to learn to ski at a young age. So did you sort of go out to, what, Threadbow and sort of learn your craft out that way? Oh, I think I first went to Mount Selwyn um, in the early days and then, yeah, spent, spent a lot of time at Threadbow as well. And is it hard, given that obviously skiing isn't one of Australia's key sports that we're involved in, is it hard getting involved in such a sport that doesn't have the popularity of some of the other sports? I guess getting involved with it is not hard, especially when you're, you're only living um, a couple of hours away from the biggest ski resorts in the country. There are obviously challenges in terms of getting to the top at a world level because, uh, you know, our competition season is, is outside of the major competition seasons. There's not the same opportunities or competition, uh, particularly for an athlete with a disability. So it's not the easiest sport to get into at a high level. But uh, for myself, it was a very, very rewarding one. And has it changed a lot since when you first got started, given that the exposure, I suppose, coming up to the Winter Olympics at this time of the year? Is it a lot easier to get involved in it compared to when you did? I guess there's a support network there um, that is certainly better than when I started. Um, As an athlete with a disability, uh, I got into the sport and pretty much competed against able-bodied kids the same age. These days, uh, there's certainly more of a structure, more support from the Australian Paralympic Committee. Things are a lot more formalised, and in many ways, that makes it easier. Was the Olympics always a goal for you, and was the achievement always sort of to try and be our nation's first Winter Olympic medalist? Certainly, you know, the Paralympics was was always a goal for me to to get to. I think I've got a bit of videotape of of me uh, at 11 starting to talk about wanting to go to the Paralympic Games, and and for me, that was a a huge goal. So uh, that was always something I was striving 
cheering for and, and wanted to be a part of. I think it's pretty natural as a, as a kid. When, when you get into a sport, you know, you want to be the best you can be at it and you want to be the best in the world at it. And that means competing at that level. And you made your debut at the 1988 Winter Olympics. You were only 14, Michael. Was this a challenge given that you're in the world's biggest sporting stage? You're 14 years of age. I mean, it must have been hard. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I had a, a, a great team support structure around me, um, there was uh, a few times, you know, when the coaches would have to stay home with me, some of the other athletes, the entire team might go out for, for a, a dinner and a couple of drinks afterwards. I'd go to dinner and then go home with the coaches and, and things like that. There are always going to be challenges competing um, at a senior level without the same physical, emotional development. But um, we had a good support structure around me, and I think from my point of view, it was really good to be a part of things at such a young age because uh, it meant that by the time I, I was um, physically mature enough and starting to ski at the top level, I was really ready to perform at the, at the highest level. Now, a lot of people will probably be aware, we've had Stephen Bradbury on the show, and many people see him as our nation's first Winter Olympic gold medalist. Many people might not be aware, though, that you were Australia's first Winter Paralympic or Olympic gold medalist when you won gold in the 92 Alberville Games. Is this an achievement, obviously, that must feel absolutely magnificent to go on your resume there, Michael? Oh, absolutely. It was, you know, it was a magic, uh, magic time in my life at 90 years of age, winning my first Paralympic gold medal and my country's first medal too. Um, the atmosphere around the team with our first success, I won gold that day. Michael Norton from Victoria won bronze. Um, you know, it was it was amazing to, to have that success in the atmosphere because there'd been so many people behind the scenes working towards it for so long. And, uh, you know, to, to be a part of, of their reward for, for putting in for such a long period of time was, uh, was amazing. What was the public's reaction like back in 92 with that gold medal on your name there? Was there a lot of attention given that it was our first Winter Olympic sort of gold medal in either Paralympics or Olympics, or was it kind of forgotten? I guess my expectations were very low back then. Um, you know, I came home and got interviewed by local television, which was huge for me. Um, I... Uh, uh, you know, went to a, an Aussie Rules game um, down in Melbourne and was, uh, you know, part of the function there and got presented at half time. Uh, there was, uh, you know, there seemed to be lots of things going on, and, and even though it probably wasn't huge for, from my point of view, it was uh, it was a big part of things. So I guess, you know, there wasn't, you know, it was five minutes of fame, and uh, it literally lasted a week, and, and then I, I got back to normal life and work. And then given today, though, that you're probably a very well-known figure, though. I mean, times have changed, I suppose, with that, Michael. Absolutely. It's been one of the really great things about my career is to see the evolution of uh, Paralympic sport in the way athletes with disabilities are treated. Um, it, uh, you know, it really has evolved, and, you know, being a part of things when I secured my first... Uh, sponsorship um, in 2002, 10 years after I won my first Paralympic gold medal, to be a part of that era and, and the part of that evolution has been fantastic. Now, over the course of your career, you went on to compete in three more Winter Paralympics and you've got a total of 11 medals, including six gold. Did you ever think you would achieve this level of success? You know, it's always something you hope for. It's always something that you, you go out on, on a day-to-day -day basis and try and win um, races and, and perform it at your very best. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess uh, to be able to, to come home with, um, with hardware is, is always a wonderful feeling and, and one of the rewards for, for the work that you put in. Now, for the 2006 Torino Olympics, which turned out to be your last Winter Games, they were drastically affected in your category, where previously it only allowed people with one leg to compete, but then it, they included people who could just stand. Now, what were your thoughts on this, and did it make winning that silver medal all that more special? You know, the classification system changed, so... Uh, 
before 2004 at Paralympic level, um, I would compete against other athletes with one leg. Um, and then in 2006, I was competing against athletes with one arm who wear a prosthetic while skiing. Basically, anybody with CP, anybody who could stand up skiing. So it made the field a lot deeper. It turned a race of around 40 athletes who would qualify for the Paralympics into a race of over 100. Um, it meant that um, it was certainly a lot tougher. Um, to me, they were good things, but there were some negative points to it as well in terms of, of having a level playing field and, and the fairness of the race. They used a mathematical handicapping system um, based on previous race results from the best person in each category to calculate um, that. To me, it, it wasn't, uh, wasn't as fair as the previous system. So there were some negatives and some positives to it. But in the end, um, I felt like on that day, I, uh, I skied as, as well I could, as I could possibly expect to. And for me, uh, I guess it was on the day about the way I skied and the way I performed. And I was generally pretty happy with that. And of course, you get a silver medal out of it. So you can't complain about that, can you, Michael? No, absolutely not. You know, I guess um, there is uh, not the same feeling as, as winning a gold um, because you're not on the top step of the podium particularly when, you know, you dominate all the other skiers who ski in the same format as you with one leg um, and you really have a really great run and think you have performed at your very best, but you still fall short. There, um, There's probably uh, some feelings there of, of regret and of, of wishing they'd um, used the old system. It's a similar thing, I suppose, to when you competed in Beijing at the Olympics. I remember watching it on TV and you'd come up there, he's Michael Milton, he's doing his lap, and then the competitor after you, instead of having, say, the one leg, he's got two prosthetic legs, but he looks like he's going about 20 times faster than you were doing. <laughs> now, is this sort of the similar concept? A lot of people, I suppose, get confused with the way they categorise it. Do you think that's an obstacle that the Paralympics need to overcome to get a better awareness of how they do this? You know, it's one of the biggest challenges and issues within the Paralympic movement. You've got basically a, a continuous spectrum of people from quite severe disabilities through to quite minor disabilities, and then you've got to classify them into certain groups of people um, who you think and you make it as fair as possible, who you can compete on a level playing field. And, uh, you know, in the end, there are going to be um, times that it works well and there are going to be times that it maybe doesn't work so well. Um, it's, it's a continuous challenge and you've also got the difficulties of not being able to put one system in place because in every sport, different types of disabilities react in a different way. Um, it's just extremely complex and it's certainly a, a big issue for people to watch Paralympic sport on television to understand how some of these things work. Um, and it's, it's on an individual sports basis and everybody does it differently. I think some sports are doing it better than others. But, uh, you know, in the end, I guess, uh, as an athlete, you want to go to an event which is the world on the world stage, like the Paralympic Games, and you want to compete on a level playing field. And what brought on the change to go into cycling and then for the goal to compete at the Beijing Olympics? I guess the, the catalyst for change in the end was um, the lifestyle that skiing requires, being overseas for four to six months every year, um, you know, lots of travel, not really able to being have a normal life or a normal job at home or anything like that. Um, and uh, my, my wife at the time, we had a baby on the way. Um, you know, I really wanted to be home for all of those things and, and we don't have the resources of um, some of the major sporting um, teams to be able to take our families and, and wives and stuff overseas and travel together and all of these sorts of things or even for part of the time. So, uh, you know, for me, that meant a retirement skiing. And in the end, it was, it was good timing for me anyway. I think I performed at my very best in my late 20s and was starting to go downhill a little bit. But at the same time, I still had 
the competitive desire, the, the desire to compete and to, uh, you know, really challenge myself and test myself. And so uh, I looked towards my other passion in life, which was riding my bike, um, went to Adelaide, tried out the velodrome, saw a bit of potential, and then uh, started to work towards trying to qualify for the Beijing Paralympic Games. And, of course, you went on to qualify the uh, Beijing Summer Olympics there too. Was it difficult to adapt to a Summer Olympic environment rather than a Winter Olympic and uh, Paralympic environment, or are they both pretty much the same? Oh, I think there's huge differences, you know, going from a sport where the person who wins a ski race uh, is the person who has the best technique, and then going to a bike race where the person who wins a bike race is the person who's the fittest and strongest. And the change in emphasis in terms of training, even little things like the, the different cultures within the organisation from a, a serious disciplined sport like cycling, um, coming from a, a skiing background where things, you know, the types of personalities of people that are attracted to the sport are, are people who may be a little bit more relaxed, a little more carefree. Um, you know, th- there was there was some quite major challenges in, in all of those things for me transferring from one sport to another. You must love the weather, though, then, you're not having to hang around the snow all the time. Well, you know, after after 20 years, nearly 20 years of, of avoiding summer and, and going overseas every time it hit 25 degrees, 30-degree days scared me and 40-degree <laughs> days were unimaginable. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was something that was pretty scary for me, being home for an Australian summer for the first time um, since I was a child, really, since I was 13 years of age. You had so, to get a different uh, wardrobe. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was a tough, it was a tough thing for me, and I think over the last three or four years, my body has certainly started to acclimatise to be better in, in summer, but uh, I think I still prefer the winter. Yeah, well, I'm with you there, Michael. I hate summer. Coming from Hobart, where we're used to being cold, you get a 25-degree day here and we're melting. I couldn't imagine being 30-degree yeah, days all the time yeah. up there. Yeah. Now, um, also, you do hold the uh, record for the world's fastest skier with a disability as well as the Australian speed ski record for abled or disabled athletes. Speed, 213.65 kilometres an hour. Now, what does it feel like travelling at 200 kilometres an hour? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing feeling going that speed and you know for me snow has magical properties and you know the amount of fun you can have on it the speed you can go on it um is absolutely amazing and to to set a goal to become australia's fastest ever skier with or without a disability was uh was a major challenge for me and something that i worked hard towards for a long time and uh you know the feeling of of going at 213 kilometers an hour is absolutely as you'd expect it to be it's it's extremely scary it's uh it's tough mentally um it's tough physically battling against the, the buffeting wind um yeah you know it, it's an amazing feeling and, and really one of my lifetime achievements that i'm very very proud of it just must be an amazing feeling i couldn't imagine it but also michael you've recently gone into the world of motivational speaking uh with saxton speakers can you tell us a bit about what brought this on in the role of motivational speaking yeah i guess uh you know as an athlete with a disability in a sport that where there's no real prize money you know, you've got to look at, at different ways to earn a living um, and to try and, you know, pay for your sporting habit, um, particularly as a skier. You know, when you're overseas for four to six months a year, it doesn't really allow to have a normal job. And while you're overseas, you're, you're, you know, spending money hand over foot on equipment, on transport, on lift tickets, on everything. Um, so, yeah, you know, for me, speaking was a way of, of really being able to have a job 
um, and work in an area that um, had good financial rewards, didn't require me to be in the country year-round. And uh, it was also something I felt like I had a little bit of talent for and, and some of the great stories about, you know, what it's really like to ski at over 200 kilometres an hour, some of the challenges I face, some of the lessons that I've learnt throughout my lifetime of having disability. They're, they're all topics that I think many people are interested in. And I guess these days, after having gone through cancer twice as well, um, there's, there's more stories there about overcoming challenges. And it's, uh, you know, I guess an industry that, for me, has worked very, very well um, in terms of being able to pay for my sporting habits. And obviously a very rewarding uh, feeling too, given that you can help their motivational speak towards people and the reception you get from that too must also give you a very rewarding feeling at the end of it. Absolutely, you know, I get some fantastic messages through my website of, of people who've heard me speak and, and really um, come out of the session feeling feeling good, feeling um, like they can achieve things and overcome the challenges in their life. And at the same time, when, you, when you're up at the end of a presentation and you've got you know, 500 to 1,000 people clapping um, clapping away. You know, in many ways, it is like a sporting performance. You're up there to perform, and if you perform well, then one of those rewards is, is the applause that you get at the end of it. Now, look, Michael, we're nearly at the end of our interview. Now, before we wrap things up with a set of questions we like to ask all our guests, I'm not sure if you are aware of it or not, but here on The Brink, we are trying to campaign to get the Summer Olympics to Hobart in 2020. Now, uh, we're getting support. We need more of it. Can we get your backing for a 2020 Olympics in Hobart? Well, that's a tough question, you know. I, I guess uh, when, when I hear something like that, my mind goes back to uh, Roy and HG's bid to have the, uh, the Winter Games in Smiggins Holes, which is an extremely small ski resort um, in New South Wales. So, Not the uh, first time we've I'm, been compared I'm, to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm hesitant to... Uh, to understand the seriousness of your bid, but certainly if, if you send me some, some paperwork, some of the official bid documents, then uh, <laughs> I'll be happy to put my name behind it. Oh, look, we'll tell you what, we started off as a bit of a joke, but um, given the level of support we're achieving with it now from uh, local politicians and that who are sort of going, look, why not? And um, previous guests and the likes of uh, Bradbury and Jane Savile that we've had on the show, we're, we're, we're getting this and uh, look, we're happy to send you through some stuff and uh, we'll, we'll get your name on it if you like that. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Maybe I can give you some advice straight up front that maybe 2020 is, is a little bit early. I think maybe you might need another another 10 or 12 years to um, recruit uh, a couple more million people to Tasmania to uh, build the stadiums and all the infrastructure required. It, but, it'd you be know, drive. I mean, I've, I've competed down um, in Tasmania um, in the Mark Webber Challenge last year and, you know, I mean, it's a beautiful natural environment. I think it would be a fantastic setting for the Olympic Games. Oh, that's good. Good to hear that we can get you on there if we send you through some stuff. Now, look, Mark, we'll just quickly wrap it up with a set of four questions I'd like to ask our guests. Probably the easiest questions you will ever get asked in your career, so if you're nice and relaxed, we'll get straight into it now. Okay. Are they things like my name and how old I am? Oh, well, maybe a little bit more difficult than that, possibly. Maybe a bit more thought process. But we'll start off with uh, what's your favourite type of cheese? Oh, my favourite type of cheese mm. um, would have to be uh, a nice French brie. Yes. Uh, I spent a lot of time in France speed skiing, and uh, yeah, some of the cheeses over there are pretty pretty wacky and pretty horrible, but a good French brie is very nice. Very popular choice, the brie one. A lot of the, a lot of the guests like that one. Uh, question number two, are you a fold or a scruncher? I fold. Oh, that's what we like to hear. The intelligent people fold, Michael. <laughs> that's what we like to hear. Que- uh, maybe it's got to do with some the the... 
asymmetrical shape of my rear end, but folding <laughs> seems to work better for me. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. Oh, there you go. Uh, question number three, are we alone in the universe? I believe we are. Oh, we are. Wow. What you, I think it might be a Winter Olympic athlete sort of thing because Stephen Bradbury was our only previous guest to say we're alone as well. Oh, really? Mm. Oh, that's a bit disappointing. I guess, you know, I'm, I'm a very rational purpose, person and I've never seen any proof otherwise. Maybe it's the snow. Maybe the snow goes to your brain or something. <laughs> Absolutely possible. You know, there's a, there's a uh, actually quite a um, bit of a trait in winter athletes to lose their hair quite early, oh. and uh, we're yet to work out if it's the amount of time that we wear our helmets or whether it's something to do with the climate. Hmm. Maybe we should look into that one as well. Yeah, you'll see. It, you'll see it next week. The uh, the two alpine skiers competing for Australia, Craig Branch and John O'Brow, are both uh, limited in the hair department. <laughs> as am I. <laughs> I'm sure come come Vancouver time, we're seeing you know 25 year old um, athletes going bald and people are going, what's going on there? And our final question, uh, Michael, of course, with the Hobart 2020 Olympics, we're always open to suggestions for events. Is there a particular event that might not necessarily be on the Olympic schedule, winter or summer, that you wouldn't mind seeing get a bit of a go at the Hobart Olympics? Oh, you told me these were going to be easy and you're forcing me to use my uh, underpowered brain. Um, Is there a particular event that I would like to see? Hmm. Um, You know, what about... uh, well, thinking of Tasmania and, and, you know, what you guys are good at, um, wood shopping would come to mind. It's yes. something that I would love to see. That it'd be good to, to have you guys well represented. Maybe something like adventure racing. That could work as well. Get Mark yeah. Webber Challenge as an Olympic event. He can be the forefront Absolutely. of that, you know. That, that would be that would be fantastic. Well, the ma- sort of, some sort of, you know, use the Tasmanian nature, bit of mountain biking, bit of trail running, maybe some kayaking or swimming. Go well. Yeah, we a bit, actually, bit of an off-road triathlon. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, when we yeah. spoke to David Foster about it, he was all for the wood chopping. And of course, our main stadium yeah, is actually sure. named after David Foster, the David Foster Stadium. So yeah, there we go. And the yeah. wood chopping in the main stadium, it worked brilliantly. Michael Milton, yeah. thank you very much for your time today. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on board. Good luck with everything in the future, and uh, hopefully the motivational speaking will go very well for you as well. Thanks very much. Thanks for the chat, Ben. All right, Brinkers, time to bring out our first show of 2024 for a close. I told you it would be a bit of a short one, a bit of an interesting one, but we are here to get on the mark, on the board for the year. We will be back, as I mentioned, in a couple of weeks' time with a special New York edition, planning to do a bit of recording whilst over there in New York, also filming the Brink Unleashed 13, 12, Ben, 12, maths. I'm really not good at math. Just because 2024 started doesn't mean I got smarter, so, you know, lock yourselves in for the year. But uh, that is the plan for the next episode and plenty to celebrate throughout this year as we get to april and that will be our 20th anniversary we'll have to do some sort of special episode there so we'll see how that goes and get excited folks because it's a brink and good time to be a brink fan pump yourself up it's a big one as always like subscribe do all the regular stuff that you do to never miss an episode and remember to tune into all our other shows of course yours network off the podium there are two main ones that go out there 007 also exists euros vision as well to really get your taste of everything that we do under the Brink umbrella. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, as always, to keep sucking those oranges, Hobart Heart of Sydney, and good night. Good night.